Well, good morning, everyone. And again, I am grateful for the opportunity to be here. It's a, uh, really a privilege to, uh, to be able to do this. It's not something that I ever would have thought I would have done. Uh, this is my second time preaching now, and it's, uh, it, it's really kind of cool how, uh, you know, when you just spend time on your daily devotionals, how you, uh, you just read through, and you really, you know, but it's different when you're preparing to teach. Um, you go a lot deeper, you cross-reference things. Um, so I encourage you, when you spend time in the Word, really spend time in the world, Word. Don't just read what's on the page, but really think about it. Cross-reference, go to other places in the Bible that talks about the same thing. You really get to bring the whole, the whole width and breadth of the Bible together when you see that. So just a little encouragement there. Well, for the last several weeks, we've been going through First uh, Thessalonians and um, just systematically studying our way through the book. And this week, we find ourselves doing what we do every week, just picking right up where we left off the last week. So if you will, turn in your Bibles to First Thessalonians 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a blue one in front of you. You can take it and turn to page 1258, and we'll be there shortly. So think about this. When you hear the word investment, what do you think of? It's usually money, right? All right. So three things we want to look at very quickly. What does it mean to invest? Why do we invest? And how do we invest? So first, what is an investment? Well, the common definition of an investment is the action or process of investing money for profit or a thing that is worth buying because it may be profitable or useful in the future. So what are some typical types of investments? There's CDs, 401ks, uh, mutual funds, stocks, bonds, real estate. There's all kinds of them. So why do we invest? Well, we invest to create wealth or to create a nest egg for our retirement years or maybe to create some wealth to pass on to our children. How do we invest? Well, we could consult a trusted advisor or we could study at length to try to ensure that we're making wise choices. We invest our money in small amounts at a time in an effort to have it grow over time. Although we generally think of money when we hear the word investment, there is a third definition we should consider, and it's this. An act of devoting time, effort, or energy to a particular undertaking with the expectation of a worthwhile result. That's a lot of words. I'm going to say it again. An act of devoting time, effort, or energy to a particular undertaking with the expectation of a worthwhile result. So it's not just money that we invest. It's our time. It's our effort. It's our energy that we invest to gain something worthwhile. We can invest our time to build strong and lasting relationships with our friends, family, and neighbors. We can invest our effort to improve our communities and to build one another up. We can invest our energy in helping mow an elderly person's lawn or tend to the needs of our shut-ins. Time is finite. It's limited. There's only so much of it in a day. So here's the question. How are you investing your time? Are you investing it in real face-to-face relationships? 
In today's digital age, how much time do you spend on digital relationships through Facebook, Snapchat, and other social media? So here are some interesting statistics. 3.2 billion people actively use social media daily. That's about 42% of the world population, and it's growing rapidly. It's adding about 1 million first-time new users every day. Social media usage by generation is broken down this way. Baby boomers, and for those that don't know if they're a baby boomer or not, that is the 60 to 75-year-old crowd, you use social media 48% of the time. Or 48% of you use it. Generation X, 40 to 60-year-olds, 78% of you use it. And millennials, 20 to 40 years old, 90% use it. So on average, people spend two, or two hours and 22 minutes every day on social networks and messaging. The challenge we face in today's culture is the increasing disconnection of personal face-to-face -face relationships in exchange for distant, superficial, digital relationships. We will scroll for hours looking at cute memes, savoring over delicious recipes, <laughs> reading what someone ate for lunch, looking at your friend's vacation pictures, all while trying to find that elusive bottom of the Facebook feed, which by the way, there is no bottom. So here's something to think about. How much time do you spend each day using social media? Now think about this. How different would the world be if Christians traded in just a portion of that time they spend on social media and invested in the real relationships and reading their Bible. I'm picking on social media here, but don't miss the point. The point is simple and clear. We need to examine anything that we put ahead of pursuing a relationship with God and ask ourselves this question. Is this eternally worthwhile or merely a distraction? How many times are you too busy to read your Bible? We take time for social media, but we can't seem to make time to read our Bibles. We cannot be in the dark and in the light at the same time. We cannot be concerned with only ourselves and be able to walk in the light of the light of a Christian life. In a world of distractions and things competing for our attention, how do we focus on things that really matter? Our relationship with God. So the church at Thessalonica was a very young church. Uh, it was only about two to three years old by the time that Paul wrote this letter. It was intended to encourage them and build them up. It was also intended to admonish them, correct, and instruct the young church. So if you've turned to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, let's stand as we feast together on the Word of God. Starting in verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. 
Let's pray. Lord, again, I thank you for the opportunity to be here. And I just thank you for the words that's on this page. And I pray that you would use this next few minutes that we have together, that you would illuminate it in our hearts and our souls, that you would give me the words, not my words, and give you all the glory. All these things I ask in your name. So 1 Thessalonians is broken down basically into, two, into sections. Uh, this section we'll be studying, we could sum it up this way. Um, it's instructions for congregational living. And in this section, we will find five points that we will discuss. One, help your brother. Two, do good. Three, be thankful. Four, test everything. And five, abstain from evil. Although this letter was written 2,000 years ago, it still applies to each of us today. I urge you, brothers and sisters, listen carefully over the next few minutes as we examine together how God expects us to treat each other here at College Street Baptist Church and outside these walls. Point one, help your brother. So who is Paul addressing here? So let's look at verse 14. It says, and we urge you, brothers... So who does he mean when he says brothers? I mean, a lot of people would think it just meant the leaders of the church, but that's not who he's talking about. He's addressing all believers, men and women both. That's me and you. He goes on to say, admonish the idle. To be blunt here, he's talking about lazy people. People who aren't willing to work for a living. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12 says this. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Many of you will recognize these sayings. Idle hands are the devil's playthings. And the devil finds work in idle hands. Being idle is to avoid work or to be without purpose. Idleness leaves a void that is easily filled with sin. When we are busy doing the Lord's work, our souls are filled, leaving little room for sin to sneak in. So I've got an illustration here. I've got two cups. One is full of water and the other is not. So would you say this one is full? Would you say this one is full? Yes. What's it full of? Air. Air. Right. I didn't think anybody get it. Okay. So, <laughs> so this one, this one we're going to say it represents Jesus and in, in the uh, the living water of Jesus. Okay. The air is going to represent sin. So what happens? We are born into sin. We're born empty, full of sin. Right. So as we pursue our relationship with Christ, the Holy Spirit then pours himself into us. Now what happens as we spend more time in the Word? There's less sin. There's no room for it. And the more we put in, the less sin there is in there. So this is what we want to strive for. Not the empty cup of sin. Idleness implies that there is nothing to be done that is worthy of time or effort. 
But hear this, Christian. As long as there are people who are lost, there's always work to be done for us. It goes on to say, encourage the faint-hearted. So what does it mean to be faint-hearted? Other translations use the word timid or feeble-minded. Or we could say shy. We are to build up and encourage those who lack courage who are, or who are timid. And here's a perfect example. Every time our outreach team announces they've scheduled visitation, I immediately start hoping it's on a day I can't be there. <laughs> so, Nathan, when you said this morning that it's going to be Wednesday night, during rehearsal, I'm going to be here. So I went, and I said, hey, you didn't even know that was in the sermon, so that was good. Yeah, so, anyway, uh, it's not that I don't care about the shut-ins that I don't want to go see. I do. I'm just not comfortable in that setting. And sometimes visitation is door-to-door, and that really makes me uncomfortable. And it's not that I don't care about our neighbors. I do. I'm just really uncomfortable. But for whatever reason, it scares me. I am the faint-hearted. I am the timid. But I am so grateful that we have on our team people who are willing to help encourage me in my, in my faint-heartedness and teach me like the way Scripture says. I go to be obedient, but I'm still not comfortable with it. So as I was preparing this sermon, I got to thinking about this. I was like, Jesus um, didn't want to endure a torture and painful death on the cross, but he did it to be obedient. He most certainly wasn't comfortable hanging there, pierced through, Bleeding, broken. Jesus willingly gave up his life on the cross. A perfect and sinless man. He gave up his life to save sin-filled people like me and you. Only to rise three days later to claim victory over the grave. I can't help but think. If Jesus was willing to suffer and die for me. Why am I so afraid to simply share him with our neighbors? Every great believer is commanded in Matthew 28, 19, says this. Go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's a command. That's an action word. Go. So why is it so hard for us to go? Is it shyness? Is it apathy? Is it selfishness? Is it rebellion? Is it we're afraid of others will think of us? Jesus said yes to you at the cross. Now say yes to him today. Yes, I'll go. Yes, I will use the breath you've given me to tell others about you. Yes, Lord, I will go. Help the weak. We can define weakness here in three ways. Physical weakness, which is lacking physical strength, maybe sick or handicapped. Mental weakness. Lacking the mental strength or capacity or maybe stressed or overwhelmed. Spiritual weakness. Not spending time in the Word. So how can we possibly test what we hear against Scripture if we don't know Scripture? Either way, we are commanded to help the weak. We each have our own strengths and weaknesses. One of the beauties of belonging to a healthy church family is a thing called gifts and gaps. Has anybody ever heard of that? All right, so I have a hand here that has fingers. These fingers represent my strengths, okay? The spaces in between my fingers represent the gaps or my weaknesses. 
I can't fill my own gaps with my strengths, right? So if I were to have someone come up, and they've got strengths and weaknesses as well. But as a body of Christ, alone, I've got certain things that I'm good at. And then over here, someone has certain things that they're, they're better at. But when we come together, we fill each other's strengths with our weaknesses. Or they fill our weaknesses with their strengths and vice versa. So that's called gifts and gaps. I believe our own personal ministries are enhanced, not only by our gifts and our strengths, but also our weaknesses and our gaps. Now think about it this way. If you're sharing the gospel with someone who has an addiction, if you suffered from the same addiction and overcame it, there is credibility there. There's relatability. If they see you overcame that demon, then they have hope that they can do that too. How many times have you heard while trying to counsel someone something like this? You don't know me. You can't possibly understand what I'm going through. Kids, teenagers, listen very carefully here. When you stay, say stuff like that to your parents, I know it's hard to imagine, but you need to understand they were once your age too. And they went through a lot of the same things you go through. Yes, times have changed. We didn't have social media and the technology that you guys have today. But it's all the same. The issues are still there. Depression, thoughts of worthlessness, peer pressure, wondering what purpose of life is, relationship issues, addictions to alcohol, drugs, pornography. The times have changed, but the sins are very much the same. So trust your parents and caretakers. Listen to them. They love you more than anything else on this planet. They want what's best for you. Paul writes, be patient with them all. Now why do you think Paul finds it necessary to, to write to be patient with each other? So there are three groups of people mentioned back in verse 14. Idle, faint-hearted, and weak. So on my way to and from work, Every morning I go down the same road, and every afternoon I go down the same road. And just about every morning and almost every afternoon, there's a group of guys sitting out there, um, just sitting in chairs. They've got empty cans all around them. And, uh, and as I pass by, I mutter to myself sometimes, get a job. Well, I'm making an assumption about those people. And the problem is I've categorized them, making an assumption that I've formed, and I don't even know these people. I've never taken the time to get to know them. Maybe I've judged correctly, but there's a chance I've maybe judged them incorrectly. So here it is. It's impossible for us to simply look at someone from a distance without knowing them or their circumstances and be able to correctly place them into one of these three categories. Idleness looks like doing nothing. Faint-heartedness looks like doing nothing. Weakness looks like doing nothing. So they all appear the same to us, but they are all very different. And according to Scripture, we are to handle each of them very differently. We are to admonish the idle. We are to encourage the faint-hearted. And we are to help the weak. And we are to do all these things with patience.
Point number two, do good. Verse 15 says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This verse is very definitive. The words there, no one, anyone, always, everyone. It's pretty clear we are supposed to be on guard always. Several years ago, my dad and I were coming out of Columbia on the interstate, and uh, this, it, it was heavy traffic, afternoon traffic, nowhere to go. Everybody's boxed in, moving slow, and this guy in a green truck pulled up behind me, and he gets right up on your bumper, and then he starts moving out this way and moving out this way, flashing lights. So uh, I tapped the brakes on him, tried to get him to back up a little bit, and he did, but then he came right back on it a little bit more aggressively that time, so I tapped him a little harder and said, hey, I know you're there, back off. There's nowhere to go. I can't go forward, I can't move over. But when the time came and he had an opportunity to move around, he sped on around and then went on down the road. Uh, and I'll be honest, you know, when people tell me I wanna spike them, when they're going down the interstate and there's no room for them to zip in and they zip in, I wanna put them in the wall. Anybody else experience road rage? <laughs> Everybody's hand went up. Well, so we all experience that emotion and feeling. Of course, we don't act on it, hopefully. Uh, I don't. But, uh, uh, but the feeling still is there. So Romans 12, 17, 17 through 21 says this. Repay no one evil for evil. So that means you can't put them in the wall. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Our sin nature makes it difficult, very difficult, to abstain from seeking revenge. But just like that cup illustration, the more we have of the Holy Spirit in us, the less that spirit of retaliation is there. So fill yourselves with the Holy Spirit. So our sin nature makes it very difficult uh, for us to abstain from seeking revenge. And why is that? What's well, that P word? Pride. God says vengeance is mine. So when we take it on ourselves to exact vengeance on someone, we are essentially, through pride, elevating ourselves to God's status and assuming his role. But God says, I will repay. It is our job, Christians, to be constantly vigil, vigilant and to make sure the unity of the church is not spoiled by vengeance against one another here. So how can we seek to do good? It's a conscious choice we must make. Romans 12 continues, verse 20. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As hard as it is, we must resist the urge to repay evil with evil. Treat others who have wronged you with love. They expect you to get angry and fight back. That's the way of the world. But what happens when you don't fight back? What happens when you turn the other cheek? What happens when you, <clears throat> excuse me, what happens when you repay them with love 
It confuses them. And maybe it will plant a gospel seed all because you yielded to God and followed his instructions. Our third point, be thankful. Verse 16 says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So what is God's will for you? It's very clear. To rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. Some may say, it just isn't practical. practical. It's not even doable. How can you possibly rejoice when you just received news you have cancer? How is it physically possible to pray without ceasing? We just wouldn't have any more time left in our day to do the other things we need to do. How do you give thanks in all circumstances when you come home and find out your house was just robbed? These are commands God, God gives us in Scripture. Since He doesn't give commands we can't keep, they must be doable. But how? God has given Christians the Holy Spirit to help obey these commands. We could lump these three commands into one overall idea, and it's this. Always be in a state of rejoicing, a state of prayer, and a state of thankfulness. It's easy to rejoice in the good things, but our state of rejoicing should, should not lessen just because the news we received was bad. Be, pay careful attention to the next part. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, not for all circumstances. There's a huge difference. Evil things do not come from God. They come from Satan. So we shouldn't give thanks for evil things. However, evil things do happen, and we should give thanks in the opportunities that are created to show Christ's love and sow gospel seeds in a foreign field. If we are truly walking with Christ and sharing in his sufferings, then we will want to be joyful, prayerful, and thankful in all circumstances. The closer our walk with Christ, the less the foothold Satan has against us, and the more joyful our lives are. Point four. Test everything. Verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. So in those days, when this was written, prophets were appointed to build the foundation of the church. Genuine prophecy was still happening at that time, but there were a lot of false prophets out there as well, spreading false prophecies. Paul admonishes the church not to automatically count all prophecy as false, but to test it against Scripture. God's Word is the answer key that we test all claims against. It is 100% God-breathed. It is without fault. We cannot and should not ever attempt to change it. So Christians, hear this. There are many popular preachers and religious speakers out there with a huge following that are preaching false gospel. They're heretics. They are like shepherds leading the blind sheep to slaughter. Having a large congregation or following should not automatically make you trustworthy. Scripture tells us to test everything. And we test it against the infallible word 
of God, the Bible. Point five. Abstain from evil. Verse 22 says, Abstain from every form of evil. If we earnestly seek a true relationship with God, it will become increasingly easier to abstain from evil. As we strive to replace the empty space in our hearts with the living water of Jesus Christ, there becomes less and less room for Satan to do his work in our lives. So a few thoughts as we conclude. Where do you invest your time? I encourage you to take a few moments this week to evaluate how you spend your time. Is your time investment yielding worthwhile results? What changes can you make this week to make more of an impact for the kingdom? Your body is a vessel. What are you filling it with? I challenge you, brothers and sisters, say yes to the gospel opportunities presented to you this week. Help your brother. Patiently admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Do good. Don't repay evil for evil, but seek to do good to one another. Be thankful. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. And abstain from evil. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for the words that you provided for us today. I pray that each person here would take these and just uh, really meditate on it this week. Where are we spending our time? Are we investing our time, the limited amount that we have, in, in things that are worthwhile for your kingdom? Lord, I just pray that you would convict our souls, that we would... Uh, that we would be the body of believers that you would have us to be, honoring your word, sticking to your commands, that we would help our brothers, that we would be thankful, that we would test everything to Scripture, that we would abstain from evil, and that we would do good. Lord, I pray all these things in your precious name. Turn your handles to 210.